At the age of 17, William Wallace, not the Braveheart William Wallace, Bill Wallace, we'll call him Bill to get rid of any confusion. Uh, At the age of 17, Bill Wallace, while in his garage working on some automobiles, was haunted by a question, what am I going to do with my life? Thought more about the question and then recognized that a better question to ask would be, what does God want me to do with my life? Then through some prayer and reading through the New Testament, Bill decided that he would become a medical missionary. Ten years later, after graduating from the University of Tennessee with his pre-medical work and the University of Memphis to complete his medical degree, he wrote to the International Mission Board, heard back from the International Mission Board, and discovered that he would be headed to Wachow, China. I think uh, my buddy that knows Mandarin said it's pronounced Wachow. I, I don't probably didn't do it justice there. But Bill would spend the next 15 years of his life in Wachow, China, tirelessly devoted to the people there. They didn't have great medical care or great medical clinics, but he was loyal. He remained in China through the Japanese invasion, through World War II, and the rise of the Communist Party. Some of the details of his devotion to the people are great. There are stories of him performing operations as bombs explode literally down the hallway in the hospital. He didn't have great access to food. One of his companions recounted an incident wherein he gave up his portion of rice for the evening to another woman who was sick with fever. He says, I later discovered Bill behind uh, the cook tent that we had put up, searching for burnt rice that would be tossed out because no one else would have it. But he seemed embarrassed when I saw him, not because he was eating the burnt rice, no one else was going to eat it, but because he didn't want me to know how hungry he was. Bill was devoted. In 1950, uh, as the Communist Party was really rising up, many missionaries were evacuated from China. Yet, Mr. Wallace refused to be evacuated and instead chose to remain with the people he was serving. Soon thereafter, uh, communists came into his medical clinic, pulled him into the hallway, and accused him of espionage. He was then imprisoned for a while, continually met with abrasive questions and what is now called like brainwashing techniques in the attempt to get him to confess to this espionage. One night, uh, the soldiers came into his cell and with long poles uh, sent them through the bars and jabbed him in the midsection until he fell unconscious. The next day, he was discovered to have died. The communists then tried to make it appear as a suicide, Bill Wallace was given no funeral, but was simply lowered in a nailed-shut coffin into the ground to be forgotten. 
Yet those he served did not forgive him. They uh, snuck, <laughs> snuck to where that he was born and despite the danger to themselves, built a monument to him and inscribed on it these words, to live is Christ. Bring us up to fill in the blank. But to die is gain. What would lead someone to give their whole life to a people they never met? What would cause someone to put themselves in imminent danger for someone else? Why, why would you live this way? Why did Bill Wallace live this way? The gospel is truth. Belief in the resurrection will change how you live. That's our main idea this morning as we turn our attention once again to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be in verses 29 through 34 this morning. And that's what I want you to walk away considering. Is how belief in the resurrection changes your life. I want to exhort you this morning to be the church and live in light of the resurrection. Let's pray and we'll get started. God, I ask that you would draw our attention to you this morning that we wouldn't get caught up in giving ourselves to time, but that we would give ourselves to that which is eternally beneficial. Help us to allow you to tend to our souls through your word. Help us to see Jesus this morning to be reminded of his beauty and glory. Lead us to rejoicing. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. A little bit of context here. Remember, Paul starts out in 1 Corinthians 15 by making clear the message of the gospel. The Corinthians had begun to believe in death more than life and had doubted Jesus' resurrection and even their own resurrection was now, had become to them something that was optional as it relates to the Christian faith. And Paul wants to make clear that the resurrection is not optional. A Christianity that is emptied of the blood of Christ or a Christianity that leaves Jesus buried in a Middle Eastern tomb somewhere is no Christianity and is of no value. And so he says to them in verses 3 and 4, recounting one of the earliest Christian creeds, I passed on to you that which is most important. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That is that Jesus died not for his own sin, but for the sin of you and me. And all, all that would ever trust in him. He took the penalty that was due our sin. And that he was buried, verse 4, 
that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul wants to remind the Corinthians that Jesus died for our sins and was resurrected for our justification, that the resurrection is the completion of the crucifixion, that this is the message of Christianity. And if you get rid of one of these two pillars, the substitutionary death of Christ or the justifying resurrection of Christ, you are left with something else that will not serve you. He then goes on to tell us the type of people that this message is for. He tells us of Cephas, who saw the risen Christ, of 500-plus brothers and sisters that saw the risen Christ, of James, the brother of Christ, who saw the risen Christ, and then he appeals to himself, who saw the risen Christ. And if you notice, all of these people, when we talked about it a few weeks ago, are screw-ups. Like Peter got in Jesus' way, told him he didn't need to die on the cross. Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan, you have on your mind, not the things of God, but the things of men. James thought Jesus was crazy. Remember, he wants to get him in a straight jacket. Stop teaching people. We need to get him away. He's out of his mind. Comes to faith after Jesus has resurrected. When you get your brother to confess that you are the son of God, that you have performed a true miracle. He just had to rise from the dead. These are people that are screw-ups and and skeptics like James and people that are not even worthy of being named, the 500 plus. And what we learn is that this message of Christ crucified for our sins and risen for our justification is for anyone. It's for the unworthy, those who aren't worthy to be named because nobody knows who they are. This message is capable of rescuing screw-ups like Peter, skeptics like James, even those who were militant towards the church of God like Paul. This message will rescue. Will rescue anyone who comes to Jesus and says, I need you to have peace with God. We'll rescue them from the just wrath of God. That's the message that's clear. We saw the type of people that the message is for. In 12 through 19, we considered that the message is true because if it's not true, Paul outlines all these reasons and he's going to pick this thread up again today in our verses that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then, then the faith is worthless, that we're still in our sins. And if we've put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Anybody that lives their life for a lie should be pitied. And that includes Christians. If this message isn't true, then we've given ourselves to a lie, and it is a terrible tragedy. Last week we saw that Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection and his eternal reign. And this week, in this small, often neglected paragraph, we're going to see how the gospel transforms the way we live right now. And it is a neglected paragraph, largely in part due to verse 29, because it's really, really difficult to understand what is being said there. It is notorious and notoriously opaque, yet we will climb that opaque mountain together. Verse 29 reads, 
otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? What? There are over 40 interpretations to this verse. So we're going to work through each one of them. Kidding. I've picked out two. If, if you're familiar with the text and yours didn't make the cut, I'm sorry. Uh, here, I'm going to give you two, and then we're going to talk a little bit more about it. The first one is, is that people were being baptized on behalf of the dead means that folks were coming to Christ while someone else is dying. And so here's the idea. Uh, wife is on her deathbed, and, you know, her husband's holding her hand, and they're having one of those emotional moments, and, and he's like, I just, I want to see you again. This can't be the end. And wife, because she's become a Christian, says to him, if you want to see me again, believe the gospel. Wife then passes away. Husband goes, I, I do believe this gospel. And then gets baptized on behalf of the testimony of the dead. That's one interpretation. Second interpretation is that this is a practice that's going on that's unique to the Corinthians. And it, it, it's a vicarious baptism for the dead. And so what they're doing is they're going, hey, Jim over there died, and I'm going to be baptized. He didn't get a chance to get baptized before he died, so I'm going to get baptized on his behalf, right? It's a baptism in the place of someone else. I, I think this is more the, the clear meaning of the text, uh, but I, I don't know, right? And I don't, have a tr- I don't have trouble telling you. I'm not really sure what, this, what practice this text is referring to precisely. But the beauty of Paul's argument here is that we don't have to know what the verse means precisely in order to understand how it's functioning in his argument. What he's saying, his big point is, if you're being baptized for the dead and there's no resurrection, what's the point? If there's no resurrection, your practice, remember he's not commending it, just commenting on it, your practice doesn't make any sense. Now, what we can do, even though we can't understand the verse, is we can use our um, good hermeneutical practices, our good Bible reading, and say, we can rule out a few things, what it can't be. When we look at baptism and what it means to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God throughout the rest of the New Testament, we can figure out some things that the text absolutely doesn't mean. And it it can't mean that if if Jimmy dies, that, um, you know, I can go and get baptized for him and he's going to be saved. You can't live however you want and reject God, live your life hating God, and then in your will, at the very end, write a little note like, P.S., have Aunt Fanny get baptized for me after I've gone so that I can go to heaven. Right? That's not how this deal works. Baptism is not a get-out-of-hell-free card that you can have someone obtain for you. Baptism is an illustration of the faith that has taken place within. It is a way that we put skin on our confession of Christ. It it announces to the world, I am in union with this Jesus. His death is my death. His life is my life. His curse is my curse. His blessing is my blessing. Baptism has never saved anyone. It's an act of obedience. You can be a Christian and not be baptized. However, you would be a disobedient Christian because Jesus has commanded us to do this. And it's just 
it's not a great way, if you're following Jesus, to, to get off the, the Christian life. I'm going to follow you and obey you, but, but not in this preliminary obedience. Just not, not a good idea. Baptism demonstrates our union with Christ, and it proclaims the gospel. Love Romans 6, verses 4 through 5, tells us about baptism, that we were buried with him, that's Jesus, by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too may we walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. So Paul's argument, whatever the practice is in Corinth, is if the dead aren't raised, why get baptized? Likewise, Christian, if we do not believe in the resurrection for the dead, why on earth would we get baptized? If dead people stay dead, and that's the end, baptism doesn't make any sense. This Christian practice is superfluous. And so he continues his argument. Why, why would you get baptized if there's no resurrection? And then in verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day. As surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That, that little like insertion, uh, as surely as I may boast in you, it's kind of an old-fashioned way of swearing. So uh, he's wanting them to know that he's really serious about this, that it's a true thing he's saying. And so it's almost like, um, I swear to I face death every day. I, I swear it to you um, by my wife and children, right? You would swear by something that is, is close and tender to your heart. And so he, he's letting them know the veracity of his claim here, and he's letting them, reminding them of his love for them, right? Despite all the junk that he's addressed throughout 1 Corinthians, I mean, this is a messed up church, a messed up people, and it reminds us a lot of ourselves, but, but despite all their junk, he still is excited about them. He still loves them. They're still near and dear to his heart. And he's, he's reminding them of that as he says, look, I die daily. Verse 32 says, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do me? Wild beasts here is likely metaphorical language for people that were acting beastly towards him. We don't really use that term anymore. Like, you're a beast. It's just not in our vernacular, uh, but people used to. And he's, he's saying that they mistreated him, they persecuted him. His Roman citizenship and just the circumstances surrounding him make it unlikely that he was actually kind of in the pit or arena facing lions and tigers and bears. It, it could have been that way, uh, but I think that this is metaphorical language here. The point remains the same. Why would I die daily? Why would I face death every day? Why would I work for this message, this gospel, if there is no resurrection, why would I suffer? Why would I put myself through this garbage if there's no resurrection? And, and, and Paul was plenty in danger. If you look at um, 2 Corinthians 11, he recounts some of it for us, and starting in verse 24. 
Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea on frequent journeys. I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brothers, toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing. Paul's life was a life of suffering and pain. Following Jesus did not bring him wealth and physical prosperity. It brought him pain. This this life doesn't make sense if Christ is not raised. I mean, how how did he endure this? And I think we get a a glimpse in 2 Corinthians 1. He's speaking again of some of his hardship in verse 8. He says, For we don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength. We even despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a terrible death, and he will deliver us. We have put our hope in him, that he will deliver us again. Paul says, my mission to make Christ known among the nations has brought me into such suffering that I have despaired of life, that I was brought near to physical death. But I recognize that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That if God wanted to deliver me from these present circumstances, this present suffering, he could. And not only that, he will deliver me from my greatest suffering. He will deliver me from death because he is the God who raises the dead. How can Paul live like this? Because this is not all there is. Because God raises the dead. If God doesn't raise the dead, why on earth would anyone live this way? Why would you put yourself in any danger? Verse 32 Let's start at, let's do verse 33 and 34 first. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals or good habits. Come to your senses and stop sinning. For some people are ignorant about God. And I say this to your shame. And so, so he's made the argument that clearly the Christian life doesn't make any sense if there is no resurrection from the dead. That it's a true message and that you need to believe it in its entirety, and it needs to be true. Like, if it's not true, it's worthless. And he's, he gives us a lecture, kind of. He's giving the Corinthians, like, a parental lecture that some of you have maybe sat through. You are the company you keep. Your friends matter. If you surround yourselves 
with clowns. Don't be surprised if your life is a circus. What's the, what's the other one? Uh, birds of a feather flock together. Or Proverbs 13.20. The one who walks with the wise will become wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. What's going on here is that your friends, the company that you keep, influences your thinking. And your thinking influences your living. How you think is how you live. Doctrine determines doing. And what's happening here is he's saying, those that are teaching there is no resurrection from the dead are leading you astray. They're leading you out of good Christian habits. Come to your senses. Believe the truth. He says, your doctrine will determine your doing. And so he's not not saying don't have non-Christian friends. But he is saying, be careful who you listen to. Be careful how your thinking is shaped. Make sure you're confiding in people, that your closest relationships are people that are going to help you to think well about God. I wonder, do you have friends like that? Are you a friend like that? Do you help others to think well about God? Because Paul's concerned about this because what you believe about the future will impact how you live now. Right? We, we said it a couple weeks ago, the college student goes to college and endures all those long hours of studying, pays all that money to the professors, maybe works not so great a job, because of the hope of a career. Because they have that hope for a career, it impacts how they live in that moment while they're going through school. Or maybe someone saves for retirement. Because they, they want to live in financial security down the road when they're too old to work, they save now. Their hope for the future determines their living now. Likewise, Paul is, is saying, your hope for the future will determine how you live now. And if you hang out with people that are teaching you there is no resurrection from the dead, that's going to impact how you live right now. You will live as if there's no resurrection from the dead because your friends will shape your thinking. You, you need to think rightly. You need to sober up. Come to your senses and start living in light of the resurrection rather than living as if the resurrection is not true. Because if the dead are not raised, verse 32, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. This little phrase is a quotation of Isaiah shows up in Isaiah 22, and it also plays on Epicurean philosophy, the idea that if death and destruction are imminent, then let's squeeze all the pleasure we can out of each and every moment. In Isaiah, the Assyrians are at the walls of uh, Jerusalem, of Israel. They're they're about to to die. They know they're going to be overtaken, and instead of repenting as God has called them to, they say to one another, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Tomorrow comes our ruin. This teaching that, that's very false, it's not 
not out of style. We still have it today. It still shows up. Maybe you've heard the phrase um, YOLO. It might be an old phrase now. If I know it, it's probably not cool anymore. But at one point in time, it was cool. And YOLO means uh, you only live once. And so, like, if someone was maybe considering not doing something, you know, like, well, come on, YOLO, you only live once, and you got to do it. Or maybe a uh, uh, more old-fashioned way of saying it would be carpe diem, seize the day. You've got to squeeze all the happiness, all the joy, all the thrill that we possibly can out of these moments. Because when we die, that's it. Paul says if there's no resurrection, y'all owe. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Get the best food. Gorge yourself on it. Get the best drink and drink yourself drunk because it doesn't matter. You came from nothing. When you die, you go to nothing. And your life here in the middle, it means nothing. So get after chasing pleasures. If the resurrection isn't true, why wouldn't you live this way, eating and drinking, because tomorrow is the end? If it's just curtains after death, why not live for the moment? He says, come to your senses. He's literally saying, sober up from your drunkenness. And I think he's playing on this, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Stop sinning. He's saying, start living and thinking rightly. Live in light of the resurrection. You've been living like those who have led you astray are, been walking in sin, living like death is the final word, but it's not. Come to your senses and live in light of the glorious resurrection of Christ. Ah, This God that you're following, he raises the dead and he's going to raise you. I think it is a terrible truth that we live in a county and in a country that is full of dead churches and dead people. What I mean by that is to deny the resurrection is to deny Christ entirely. To deny the resurrection leaves you with a meaningless Christianity. Yet this is what many do. And so we are, are left with dead churches and they're filled with dead people. But, but here's another thing. I think too often we live as if there is no resurrection. That the, our philosophy of life is not to live as Christ. To die is gain. But let us eat and drink and complete our bucket list because tomorrow we die. I wonder of those dead churches filled with dead people. Are we one of them? Are we guilty of living as if the resurrection is a fairy tale? That's the challenge of this little paragraph. 
that if the resurrection is true, we need to live in light of it, that we need to be willing to face death daily, to die to ourselves daily, that we might serve the cause of the gospel, that we might be willing to invest our time and our money and our very selves to the end of making Jesus look as beautiful as he really is. That's the challenge of this text. There's also a comfort here, and I don't want you to miss it, because this is what left out can mean. I think oftentimes, amidst the suffering and the pain and the evil that exists in our world, we're left with asking that question, how long, O oh Lord? How can I face death another day? How can I, how can I deal with typhoons and earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes? How can I deal with shootings from Columbine to Sandy Hook to Orlando to Virginia Tech to Las Vegas? How can I deal with racism and human trafficking and terrorism? How can, how can I deal with all of this terrible evil? How long? And the answer in this text is I can face death every day because the resurrection is true. Because, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. That's how you can face death and suffering and evil each and every day. Not because it doesn't hurt, not because you don't need to weep and mourn for it, not because it doesn't have a sting, but because there's a brighter day coming. Because death doesn't speak the final word, Jesus does. And Jesus says, the one who comes to me, though he die, yet shall he live. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus reigns. And he abolishes all rule and authority and power. Verse 24. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. Because Jesus will one day sever death's head from its unconscious body, as David severed the head of Goliath from his unconscious body, we can celebrate. Because the resurrection is true, and God has ended evil without ending us in the cross of Christ, because Jesus took the punishment we deserve, we can have hope in a glorious future. Not because we're special. Remember I shared with you Emmanuel's mantra weeks ago. Says, I'm a complete idiot. Like we are fools. We, there's not anything good in us. We're complete idiots. We're messy, broken people. But our future is incredibly bright. Because God has lavished his grace on us. Simply because we've said, I can't make myself right with you, God. It doesn't matter what I do. Christianity is not a religion of do, it's a religion of done. It's about what Jesus has done for us and us living in response to that. Obedience to Jesus is just loving 
That's a loving response to God. Like when, my, when I want my kids to obey me, like usually sometimes the question is, but this is a little bit guilty now, but, but do you love daddy? Well, of course. Well, then pick up the Cheerios, man. We, we, if you love God, obey him. Live for him. Make the, the mantra of Paul and of Bill Wallace yours. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Too many of us have too comfortable a Christianity that doesn't cost us anything. But the call of the Christian life is to die. Luke 9, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it, will find it. 17th century Scotland was not a very good place to be if you were a Protestant Christian. There was incredible persecution from the establishment religion. And so those who were following Christ at the time in the form of the Reformation had to meet in hills and in valleys and among the heather. That's a flower I learned. But they had to meet in secret because the authorities would send troops to search them out and to persecute them. The idea was to weed them out through killing. I think there's no greater hero of the 17th century than Richard Cameron, who in meeting during one of these secret meetings was discovered by troops, drug out from among the people he was serving, and killed. He was literally ripped apart. His hands were cut off and affixed to two separate daggers. His head was cut off and affixed to the end of a sword. And the soldiers to make an example of him, were to put his limbs on a railing that sat in the Capitol close to John Knox's home. And on their way there, uh, one of the soldiers, I don't know if this is what he actually said, but allow me to recreate here. Hey, do you know where Cameron's father is? He's in the prison right up the way. Another soldier, yes, let's go show him what's become of his son. And so the, the two soldiers take the limbs of Richard Cameron to his father who is in prison. They lay the hands and the head of Richard Cameron before his father and they ask him, Sir, do you know these? And his father's response is recorded. He said, I know them. I know them. It is my son, my beloved son. And then he said, it, it is the Lord. The Lord is good. It is the Lord's good will. He cannot wrong me or mine, but has made goodness and mercy and love to follow us all the days of our lives. Is Richard Cameron crazy? But was his father out of his mind to respond like this? Yes, if there is no 
resurrection. Friends, there is a resurrection. Which means this is a God we can live for. This is a God we can die for. Because this is a God who raises the dead. Because Jesus lives, we can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, life is worth the living just because he lives. God, we thank you for the truth of the gospel that teaches us, even though we are more wicked than we ever dared dream, that in Christ we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. We thank you for sending Jesus to live the life we should have lived, failed to, to die the death we deserve to die, but don't have to, We thank you for raising him from the dead so that by faith in him, we can have the glorious, sure hope that like him, we too shall rise. It's in his name we pray.